after the Apostle Paul's introduction and greeting in verses 1 and 2 of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he immediately praises God. And that praise leads into what has been called the most eloquent passage on comfort in the entire New Testament. There is so much here that may surprise us and encourage us and hopefully soothe us when our souls are weary. It's one of those passages that as you work through it and unwrap it layer by layer, it kind of worms its way into your hearts and lifts your head to see more of the glory of our great God. If you are able, would you please stand with me as I read 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. I'll be reading mostly from the English Standard Version, but there is one part of verse 6 that I'm going to read, and it's from the Christian Standard Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance. The patient endurance of the saints, suffering that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Most English Bibles divide these nine verses into two paragraphs. The first paragraph is about God comforting us in our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort others who are in any affliction with the same comfort that God had given us. In the second paragraph, Paul shares one of his most traumatic recent experiences and what he learned in and through that experience. 
which should immediately resonate with each one of us. So the first paragraph, in which God comforts us in all our affliction, verses 3 through 7. Again, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies and God of all comfort. We hear this word a lot, but what does blessed mean? It means to praise or to speak well of, and it implies the blessing is to one who is inherently worthy of that praise. Who is that? Only God. Why does Paul begin this section with praise? That's a question that we may just never ask. We just read right through it. Well, could it be that Paul does not want us just to consider this letter, especially here, as a series of interesting truth statements to ooh and ah over and maybe discuss later? Instead, he hopes each reader and the church as a whole would want to, with him, recognize God's great deeds of grace for his people and be so moved by them that they would then be in a posture and attitude of praising God from the get-go. This is very different from thinking that theology's purpose is primarily just to inform us Rather, the ultimate purpose of theology is to equip us for true worship, which is the yielding of our whole being to God. Verbal praise, then, should be the outward expression of a deep inward commitment, which is grounded on good theological content derived from Scripture. We know from the context and the rest of these verses today that Paul is especially praising and thanking God for comforting him. First, in that near-death experience, and second, in delivering him from that experience. So he begins by highlighting the aspects of God's character he had come to value in some new and deeper ways as a result of his own personal need and God's response. God's response being his limitless mercy and compassion and never-failing comfort. Paul had discovered how willing and able God was to give him the strength to endure these afflictions. Comfort literally means to make strong together. Don't miss that. Well, what does the Father of mercies and God of all comfort do? And why does he do it? In verse 4, we see what the Father of mercies and God of all comfort does. We read who comforts us in some of our afflictions. No, all our affliction. And why does he do it? So that we may be able to comfort or make strong together 
those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Now, how many times, honestly, do each of us gripe about God not answering our questions? He just doesn't answer my questions. Usually that means he doesn't answer them the way we want him to answer them. But here, staring us in the face, is a passage with one of the most important questions in all of life that we struggle with, and he gives us the answer. So right off the bat, we need to be willing to hear that answer and to understand it as much as he enables us to and to bow before him as we find out what that answer is. Again, we've got to note here that if anybody could empathize with Christians who were enduring affliction, it was Paul himself. Because of all he had to endure in his calling as Christ's missionary to the Gentiles around the eastern part of the Mediterranean world, mainly. What he experienced and learned firsthand was that God comforts us in all our afflictions. His perspective continually rested in the reality that his whole being was yielded to and belonged to God. That's the reality that we need to hear and be willing to deal with. His perspective continually rested in the reality that his whole being was yielded to and belonged to God. He did not, therefore, expect some kind of privileged treatment because he was an apostle or because of his position or because of his incredible knowledge Quite the opposite, actually. What did he expect? Paul expected to be treated like his Savior was. That again raises some questions, does it not? Do we expect better than what our Savior experienced? His hardships were far greater than most Christians at that time or any time, really. And he knew through these experiences that God was faithful to comfort him in and through those experiences. I don't know about you, but I think that is an amazing truth that just stops me in my tracks. As we look at our lives or think back on experiences and realize how we did respond, and it wasn't this way. This perspective then led Paul to see and understand and desire to comfort or to make strong together those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Did you catch that? Only then will we see and understand and desire this comfort if we are bowed before the Creator willing to see the reality of the perspective from his view. Paul was equipped to be able to do just this 
because he found God's comfort to him to be more than enough. But that's not usually our cry, is it? Then, as those folks also found God's comfort sufficient and faithful, they too would be able to and equipped to also comfort others going through any affliction. So Paul learns it. He's enabled to comfort others who are going through affliction, and then the ripples continue on and on and on as normal people who face any kind of affliction also find God's faithful comfort through the care of other Christians, etc., etc., etc. And when those ripples break down, what happens? The church suffers mightily, dealing with all sorts of issues and problems. In verse 5, we see the reason why suffering equips the Christian to pass along God's comfort. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Now, here Paul ups the ante as we see the unwritten assumption that our suffering should arise out of our obedience to God's will and not from rebelliousness against God and the pursuit of our own ends. The comparison in verse 5 between Christ's afflictions and those of Paul and the Corinthians necessarily implies this. Christ's afflictions were all experienced because God's will for him involved confrontation with sin and evil at all different levels. What does Peter say in his letter in 1 Peter 2 verse 20? For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So, when those in Christ suffer for living in obedience to him, in a world that desires no allegiance to anyone but themselves, that is sharing abundantly in Christ's sufferings. Now, there are all sorts of examples, but the biggest is staring us right in the face here, and that is Paul's. Remember, he was Saul for the first part of his life. And when Saul was on his way to Damascus, he heard Jesus say, Why are you persecuting me? Saul was persecuting Christians, yet the Lord told him that Jesus and the church were one. Persecuting Christians equals persecuting Christ. When believers suffer for their worship of or their obedience to Christ, both Jesus and his followers endure the pain. It's obvious that we need comfort because we suffer and are afflicted often in this life. And that comfort 
the blessings of knowing and realizing the compassion, mercy, and grace of God comes from the cross of Christ and what he did there. At the cross, we find ourselves contemplating, hopefully, the deepest sufferings of all time. So deep that never in our earthly lives can we ever even get close to estimating and fully understanding what exactly Christ suffered for us. Not exhaustively. As Christ's blood was poured out for us, so too came the blessing of comfort pouring out of Christ to those he died for. And we discover there at the cross that suffering, so evil and apparently meaningless in and of itself, can and does have eternal significance because God gave it his own meaning. It was endured by Christ for our blessing. So the Apostle Paul has come to realize that through Christ, his own suffering may lead to comfort for the Corinthian believers. Let that sink in. No matter what you're going through right now or have gone through or will go through, it is meant by God to ultimately be used, hopefully, to comfort others through maybe similar things. He means that the very difficult experiences he has experienced in and through, uh, that he has experienced and through which he has received strengthening comfort from God, now enable him in his turn to minister comfort to other Christians. And he is so grateful to be able to be used by God to bless others that it frees him up to be able to do so. Paul can say to the hurting and to those in pain because of his own suffering, I know God can give you strength in your trials. Why? Because he gave me strength in and through mine. Now, I hope we can see how different that is than just, I know how you feel. This is on a different level. And I know how you feel, which sometimes can seem insensitive to a sufferer, no matter how sincerely it's said, doesn't really get you there, even though that's what you're trying to say. A lonely sufferer, often tends to feel as if they are going through something no one else can ever really understand. So what if the lonely sufferer becomes aware of Paul's own suffering and he looks at him and goes, wow, he not only knows what I'm going through, he knows it far more and at a greater level than I ever have. So how did he come through that 
and now is so not into gazing at his own navel and his own problems that he can reach out to me? Well, we see the answer here in this passage. And what were Paul's sufferings? The personal experience that he already suffered in his life. Now, I hope you guys realize, if you've read through this letter, that there's a list in here in chapter 11, starting in the middle of verse 23, that is incredible. So just listen. I'm going to read it. This is a resume that is unlike any other resume. Far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hand of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Let me stop right there. Why did he say that? What's the big deal about 39? Because the Romans were such incredibly exacting executioners that they were trained at 40, you die. At 39, 39, you're barely alive. And evidently, he says he received this from the hand of the Jews, who must have been good learners. Then, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, Danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, and hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches." i.e., you guys in Corinth, who I'm writing to. So might the lonely sufferer be willing to pour his heart out to Paul at some point? Maybe not at first, but maybe as it seeps in a little and he keeps coming alongside. Christians can bear witness to God's grace because they know that without it, they are forever lost. Our difficult experiences or afflictions or sufferings are meant for what then? What are they meant for? They're meant to make us willing to go to Christ. No matter what the situation is, or who the listening ear may belong to. Then in verses 6 and 7, Paul mostly reiterates what he's just said, just so we know, yes, he really did say this, because at first, this almost seems counterintuitive, does it not? So he reiterates it here in the next couple of verses. He writes, if we're afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. 
He jumps right to the why part. And if we're comforted, it's for your comfort. Because ultimately, you'll get it. And if we're comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same suffering that we suffer. So what's the result? Patient endurance. Isn't that what we cry out for if we know this may not end and I just want to be able to sleep at night and I just want to be able to see it the way God sees it. And then he writes in verse 7, Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Now there are several things to notice here in these two verses. In the beginning of verse 6, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Paul's not saying that his own suffering earns salvation for anyone. That's not what he's saying. The sufferings Paul endured for the sake of Christ are unable to add anything to the process of redemption. But he knows that Christ does and may use those sufferings to lead sinners to himself as they witness what God has wrought in this Christian's heart and life. And secondly, Paul is an example for the Christians and all of us to accept and appropriate the comfort God extends to us during our troubles. How quickly, or not at all, do we cry out for God's mercy and strength when in distress? I said it that way because usually if you're a believer, at some point you do get there, maybe after there's a trail of disaster for who knows how long. The question is, how quickly are we learning to cry out to God for his mercy and strength. Because when we do that, it points us back to thinking what this passage teaches. Thirdly, the encouragement and strength that God gives in times of affliction is meant to produce this patient endurance or perseverance so that we can bear up under the stress we don't like that because we don't want any stress. We want immediate deliverance from it, not in and through it. But you notice that Paul gives what happened to him, and he first lets us know that he went through and in it and learned these things first before God delivered him out of that harrowing situation. So do we understand what this means? God's remedy in many or most of these situations is not to remove our afflictions, but to impart strength to cope with them and persevere through them. In other words, God graciously gives strength to endure. Now I look around with this half of the congregation, and I see several people that I know of, may not know of others, who have gone through incredible 
long-term or even short-term, but really tough suffering because they're being obedient to the Lord in some area of their life. And those that I'm thinking of right now can stand up and say, God was faithful to me and gave me the endurance to get through it and not just to get through it, but to encourage others who were with me. That is the most beautiful thing on the face of the earth for people in a congregation of believers to be able to say. Well, did the Corinthians have tribulations, have tribulations different from those of Paul? Because not many people had a list like Paul. Yeah, let's just think of a couple that we've learned about in 1 Corinthians especially. They're still afflictions because they afflict. How about those who had to confront arrogant teachers in their midst? The ones in the church that knew they were arrogant teachers trying to get people to follow them. What about others in that congregation who had to live with an unbelieving spouse? There was a whole section that Paul wrote about how to handle that. What about some who had troubled consciences because of invitations to eat meat offered to idols? Did that seem big to you when we went through that? No, that's never happened to us really, but it kind of does. And there's other ways that it applies. And on and on and on with relationship issues in this church and legal issues, and you, there's, there's a list a mile long in these letters. Fourth, why is Paul's hope for the Corinthians unshaken? We're in his second letter to them. Most of us have been probably very surprised at how dysfunctional this church was. And yet, why is Paul's hope for them unshaken? Because Paul knows what? We see in verse 7, this is really a summary of Paul's whole theme here in, in his second letter, and especially in chapter 1. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know, here's the answer again, are we willing to look at it? For we know that as you share in our suffering, you will also share in our comfort. So instead of looking at people's suffering as something to run from, avoid, and never talk about, a church goes through a process when God is working in it. As he allows suffering, or maybe even brings it, to people who share what's going on, and they find out that the other people have gone through similar things, not everybody, but some, and they comfort one another that something amazing happens in that body. And what is it? That they're comforted by Christ, they find out. That he is still the sovereign king. That he has suffered on the cross for all of us in each of the ways that we suffer. And his suffering bought our redemption so it takes us out of ourselves 
to look to what he did and be grateful that we can know him through the suffering instead of falling completely apart because it hasn't ended the way we wanted it to. That, too, is a beautiful thing. And that's what God does in his body. And we've got a great picture of it right here. This is not a perfect church. Corinth. We are not a perfect church. There is no such thing as a perfect church. The whole point is that God is working in us to make us more and more like Christ so that as we learn to operate this way more and more, others in the world, others in your family, friends, they see something completely different than the way our crazy world is operating, especially, say, right now. The Corinthians and all believers experience a share. You notice how Paul says this? As you share in our suffering, you will also share in the comfort. So the Corinthians and all believers experience a share in the distresses and afflictions Christians suffer when they follow Christ. Along with Paul, they and we receive a sustaining comfort that Christ extends to us. This is all a picture of something, you know, haven't really heard this much. The communion of the saints. That's what this means. As we together share in the affliction and consolation we endure for the sake of Christ. We go through affliction and are sustained and endure by the comfort that comes in and from Christ. So when we see our brothers and sisters facing similar and their own afflictions, we point them to Christ by comforting them, coming alongside of them with the assurances that we've learned are true and sufficient and faithful through our own afflictions. Then those people are also able to be equipped to comfort others. Christ. The elders are currently <clears throat> reading gradually through the summer a little book called Side by Side. The whole point of this book is exactly this message. We're trying to learn it so that we can better deal with our own afflictions to help you with yours and vice versa. Now the second paragraph here in our text is Paul's own suffering and deliverance, his account. He writes, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. Now that right there, hold it. He's not hiding this. He makes them aware of what he went through. Not to brag. Not to prove that he's some tough apostle that can go through everything. But he wants them to be aware of the affliction that he, they experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Now, if we stop right there, most everybody in this congregation, whether young or old, has at least come close to that point or maybe in it and maybe thinking you're going to go all the way through it. 
And then he says, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. That's one of the strongest statements in the Bible for what this life is all about. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also may help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Paul never experienced the complete removal of all suffering. And neither will anyone else. So my advice to myself and to you is to quit looking for it. Just be real. That doesn't mean you become this negative person. Oh, it's going to happen. No, you look at it completely differently. You look at it every time as another opportunity. If it all comes at once, you're going, man, God must know I'm ready to grow a lot. Okay, step one, today. Step two, tomorrow. Am I trusting him? Do I know him? Am I hunger for him? So he did experience in this case that he's writing about a deliverance, did he not? Well, is that contradictory? No. Paul is saying that in his, this experience in Asia, the comfort and strength came first, but that in due course, this was succeeded by the deliverance. Is that what we do? Yes, we ask for deliverance, but we seek first to know his comfort because... We don't know whether his divine will is for deliverance in any and all circumstances. Do we not? The specific details of Paul's trouble in Asia that we can't know for certain, but we can say this about him. Christians facing various forms of trial can identify with Paul and be helped by what he says. Can we not? I've only had one personal experience in this regard. I've had close calls like most of you, but nothing like in 2008. And I've told you that there was a piece being hauled into the surgery unit. And granted, I was out most of the time, so I didn't have to go through hardly anything before, which is a whole different ballgame. But I remember when Marty came up to say goodbye, but hopefully not, that I would wake up in one of two places either knowing she would be right there and be alive on this earth or that I would be in the presence of Jesus. Clear as a bell. And if I learned one thing through that whole experience, that was it. We can't just say he's going to deliver me every time the way we want to be delivered. God's grace is as comprehensive as our total need. It's never almost adequate. It's more than adequate and sufficient. And that's true both in the present and the future. 
the pressure of this situation was so severe that Paul's talking about that he writes he despaired of life itself. That's amazing. In other words, he was brought to the ultimate limit of his inner resources. In verse 9, he writes, why? To make, he says, to make us real rely not on ourselves, but on God. You notice what he says at the end? Who raises the dead. Paul needed to learn the total reliability of God. And later, in chapter 12, verse 10, you know, it's a very famous passage. There's several throughout this letter. But this one is where he writes, again, something that we just go, what? He says, when I am weak, then I'm strong. Because not only do we learn something about ourselves through these kind of experiences, but we also often learn the need for a deeper trust in God. And we also discover then our experience about how utterly reliable he is. This enables us to give praise to him for all sorts of experiences that are anything but pleasant. And he starts off, remember this letter, with praise. And I've often wondered as I read these two letters, knowing what the churches are like, it's like, wow, is he just saying that to butter him up? No, he's not. He really means it. Do experiences that find God's faithfulness engender more and more hope? Yes, of course. And lastly, Paul seeks the prayers of his readers for his general safety in the ministry that God has given him. He probably always did, but do you think he was a little more obviously asking this after that experience of how important people's prayers are? Because he wanted God to get the glory through whatever happened to him in that wild and crazy Roman Empire world where he was a missionary to Gentiles. And throughout it all, we see Paul's constant concern then that God should be glorified and praised. Folks, that's what we've got to pray as we try to walk through the times in which we live. Number one most important thing is, do we want God to be glorified and praised? And the number one way that we can see that happening more and more is to love our brothers and sisters in Christ with selfless love, putting them as more important than us. And I believe with all my heart that we're growing in that respect greatly. Thank him. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we come before you humbled, which is a really good thing you're doing in us. We thank you for using the Apostle Paul the way that you did. We thank you that he could give you praise 
in the midst of and after and before some more stuff that was about to happen to him because he saw life from a perspective that we need to have and grow in. And, oh, Lord, we thank you that that's what you're working in us to make us more and more like your son, Jesus Christ, who died for us, who bought us with his blood to know you, to be a part of your people, your family. And for that, oh, God, we thank you. And we do pray that as individuals and as a church that you would use us to be a light in a more and more dark world where people do not have the real answers and that you would give us opportunities to provide those answers in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And we ask that in his name. Amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? This one is at the end of 2 Corinthians. It's one we know. We've said it a million times. Not enough, though. If you want to say it along with me, please do. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now, as you guys are dismissed and you go outside,